Today I want to give you a little review, a reminder for some of you. Some of you, this might be new, but in the church constitution, we have a, a several purpose clauses. And one of the purposes of Good News Baptist Church is this. It says, we purpose to spread the gospel to our neighborhoods, our community, and the world through personal evangelism as well as corporate evangelism. That is one of the reasons you and I exist. That's the reason for one of the reasons for our church. Now, when Jesus walked on this globe, the world population of that time period was approximately 250 million. Well, I looked up on the internet, and as of March of this year, 2011, or sorry, 2012, we now have over 7 billion people. Yes, that's the number 7 with nine zeros after it. That, trades, that translates into a population growth of approximately 90 million people every year, 250,000 every day, and 10,000 people are brought into this world every hour. Such figures, of course, create a sobering evangelistic problem, doesn't it? Uh, it's just mind-boggling. I mean, what do you do with that, with that? It's like trying to drink out of a waterfall, isn't it? Well, this is a concern which Jesus felt. In Matthew 9, verse 37, he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What are we going to do about this awesome task of world evangelization? Well, obviously no one of us can reach the entire world. <laughs> None of us are omnipresent. None of us are all-powerful. There's no way we could get everywhere and learn every language and preach the gospel to every person on planet Earth before they die. So it's a massive problem. Each one of us, though, can reach our own world. Each one of us can be a witness for Jesus Christ in the world that God has planted us in. The, the world, and by that I mean the world that you and I go daily, your workplace, your neighborhood, your home, your friends, your, fr your family members, you can reach that world. But if we're going to do so effectively, then there's a few things that you and I need to renounce. There's, a, there's some problems that, uh, that we have. There, and, and number one, we have this, this infection of apathy. Generally speaking, okay? Generally speaking, we have an affection of apathy. And we, we also need to recover a sense of urgency. By the way we live, often we show we're practical atheists. And I don't mean you're an atheist, but by practical atheists, I mean by the way we, we, we live. What we, what we don't say, we often show we're practical atheists. So, you say, how can I uh, renounce this infection of apathy and then recover a sense of urgency? Well, there's, there's several things you can do. How can we do this? Number one, we need to recognize there are some stifling factors. There are some stifling factors that, that often putting, that are putting out the fires in our life. What creates apathy and causes urgency to disappear in our lives? Well, I believe there's at least two factors which account for the suffocation of evangelism in much of, of what I'll just call contemporary Christianity. Number one, there, I, I think Jesus mentions here in Matthew chapter 6, the first factor is materialism. Much of the reason why the church in general has gone, and by the church, I hope you understand, I mean just Christians, okay? 
those who are true believers in Jesus Christ, that's the church. And, and, and much of the reason why the church has gone to sleep is because of materialism. Like Judas, many people are prepared to betray Jesus if the price is right. In the Sermon on the Mount here, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns against the seductions of wealth of this world. He identifies for us four serious dangers. There's four serious dangers you need to be aware of. Number one, the wealth of this world is cursed with transience. The wealth of this world is cursed with transience. And by transience, I mean it's, it's, it only lasts for a very short time and then it quickly comes to an end. It, it, it eventually will disappear. It's, it's going to change. It will not last. Jesus is very clear here. Look at Matthew 6, verse 19. Matthew 6, verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus, now we've preached on this before, so I'm not going to elaborate too much, but remember, Jesus is not against treasure. He's not against personal wealth or possessions. Okay, in fact, uh, I suggest a very good book, a little short little book, I think it's in the church library. Read the book, uh, Randy Elkhorn. Randy Elkhorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. He's also written some other excellent books I highly recommend. Uh, books like uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, for example. Excellent books to help you to understand what the Bible says on this subject. But Jesus is not against treasure. He's just against where we store up the treasure. We're going to store treasure somewhere. The issue is where are we going to store the treasure. So Jesus says we're a fool if we store it on earth, but we are truly wise if we're storing in heaven because the treasure in heaven is not transient. It's not just for a short time. It's it's not going to come to an end. Whereas treasures on earth, he says, they decay and they rust and thieves will steal them. They're not going to abide forever. Well, the fourth serious danger that Jesus identifies here is, number two, the wealth of this world captures the heart. That's one of the problems with materialism. It, it captures our heart. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, the problem here is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where your treasure goes, your heart follows with it. Does that make sense? The reality is our hearts are always going to be chained to our treasures. They're, they're united. Our hearts always follow that treasure. And so the treasures will actually govern our lives because they're controlling our hearts. So the, the, the tragedy here, if you will, is that materialism will tend to cause apathy in our lives. It tends to cause us to go to sleep, spiritually speaking. It causes us to not to love souls like Jesus loves and not be involved in missions as God wants us to be involved. Now, what is the reason for our sense of disinterest in spiritual things? Why is that? Well, the reason is that we do not treasure spiritual things. If you don't have a heart for evangelism and missions, it's because your treasure is somewhere else. Does that make sense? Because Jesus says your heart will follow where your treasure is. So if your treasure is in evangelism missions, in the souls of people, 
If that's where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So if we've got a problem here, then what we need is revival. We need to be revived. Too often we take the best of what we are and what we have, and then we invest it in the worst kind of of treasures. And by that, I mean the, the kind that don't last. That's what Jesus was talking about. Those are the worst kind of treasures, the kind that don't last. So how do we defeat sin? Because this is materialism is a sin. How do we defeat it? Well, I like what one pastor said. It was a subtitle of an excellent book, if you want to read it sometime. He said, you defeat sin with superior pleasure. You defeat sin with superior pleasure. All right? Sin is pleasurable, Hebrews says. The problem is it's only pleasurable for a season. It doesn't last. It's transient. So how do you defeat it? You want to, you want to defeat materialism, then you've got to come up with something that brings you more pleasure than just having money and possessions. That's how you defeat it. Well, Jesus gave us a third danger. Number three, the wealth of this world darkens the mind. It darkens our minds. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The point is that the wealth of this world is going to darken your mind. You're not going to see properly. We learn from these verses here that generosity and mercy, things like that, are going to fill a person with light. But on the other hand... What is greed and materialism going to do in you? Think of people who are greedy and and materialistic. What does it do? It just fills them with darkness. So to be generous and merciful is to be godlike, isn't it? To be godlike. You say, what is godlike? Well, in 1 John 1, 5, it says that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's the way God is. Jesus gives a fourth danger here, and... Matthew chapter 6, the wealth of this world enslaves to the wrong master. You want to be enslaved to the wrong master? Then just make it your life goal to be rich, to have lots of possessions, to be able to do whatever you want, and you'll be enslaved to the wrong master. Look what Jesus says in verse 24. Matthew six twenty-four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money there means not just what's in your bank account. It's referring to all of our material possessions. It is proper to have possessions in moderation, okay? Jesus is not saying, you know, don't have any possessions. I mean, Jesus had stuff when he was here on earth as well. There's nothing wrong with having some things as long as they're in moderation, but it's never proper to actually place our trust in those possessions. That's the problem. Uh, those things can uh, cannot meet our fundamental needs. The, the problem is we, we, we fool ourselves into sometimes thinking that our things will meet our fundamental needs. And that obviously can't be true. The imagery behind Jesus' teaching in this verse here is that of a slave and the owner of the slave. 
It is not possible to be the property of two owners, Jesus is saying. You cannot be owned at the same time by two owners or two masters. Now, do you understand the problem with possessions here by what Jesus is saying? The trouble with possessions is not that you and I own things. Okay, We're going to own things. That's going to happen. But do those things own us? Do your possessions own you? Are you controlled by your possessions? That's the issue. You're going to own things. Hopefully, they're not controlling you, though. If our possessions become our master, then we become a slave to that master. And, of course, I hope you see a problem with that because Jesus Christ should be our only master. Now, there's three solutions to this problem, this massive problem that has infiltrated our world and the church. Number one, here, first solution is always reevaluate to check who is your master. You have to constantly do that. It's easy to get, get knocked off course. And, uh, you know, Jeremiah 17 says our hearts are deceitful. They're desperately wicked. Who can know them? And so we need the, the Holy Scriptures to readjust our thinking, if you will, to put us back on track to see, you know, it's very easy to, to, to get off track. And number two, hold on to possessions loosely. Hold on to them loosely. The reality is, you should, remember, you're not, you're supposed to be owning your possessions. They shouldn't be owning you. So hold on to them loosely. And then number three, acknowledge the fact you're only a steward of all of your possessions. God owns everything in reality. He owns you. He owns your job. He owns your car. He owns your house. He owns your children, your grandchildren, your bank account. He owns everything you see outside. All the trees, the mountains, the rivers, the sky, you name it. He owns it all. It's his. It's not yours. It's not the government's. It's not anybody else's. It's God's. And so he makes us a steward of all that. And so our responsibility is to be a wise steward of what he owns. So the first question that I asked was, was this. What creates apathy and causes urgency to disappear? Well, the first factor there is materialism. Materialism, Jesus says, causes this urgency to disappear and for, uh, for apathy to come into our lives. But there's a second factor we need to talk about. There is uh, what, what some have called the uh, oppressive Christianity. The second factor is oppressive Christianity. I'll explain that in a moment. But, but, but this is an oppression which takes the form of a status quo rigidity. You, you know what I mean by status quo, where where you just kind of want to just stay the same. Okay. Ho- hopefully, none of us want to just stay the same. But there is something, hopefully, that we can strive for, which is a spirit-filled flexibility. Okay, That's what we all should be striving for, a spirit-filled uh, flexibility. And, and by rigid, I'm talking about somebody who's stubborn, somebody who's obstinate, somebody who resists change. They, you met that kind of a person? Maybe you're one of them. Sometimes they don't like change. We, a lot of people just love the status quo. They like the same thing. Well, that, that, that can be a problem. Right? Sometimes it's good, but sometimes it's a problem. Sometimes God wants us to be flexible. And by flexible, I'm just speaking of being adjustable, being adaptable to, to our society, to our culture, to this world, to the times. 
Now, in my opinion, there, there needs to be a flexibility, particularly when, as we think about evangelism and missions, too often we can kind of get stuck in the status quo. We become quite rigid and inflexible. Uh, sometimes people think, you know, you know, there's only one way to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> only one way. All right. That, that's being inflexible. And sometimes that's not helpful. Often that's not helpful. But if we're flexible and we're kind of open-minded a bit here, uh, uh, as long as we're, you know, if you're not, in other words, if you're not closed-minded, we can be flexible and God can, can use us in various ways in various places a little better, hopefully. Uh, and if this flexibility, of course, needs to be spirit-filled and, of course, needs to be Bible-based. I'm not saying, you know, just, just be a pragmatist. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying the end justifies the means. Okay. It does, I'm not saying just do whatever you want. You know, if somebody gets saved and and uh, you know if you broke the law to to do that, then great. No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, pragmatism is wrong. All right, pragmatism is wrong. And so our, our evangelism, our as we're involved in missions, needs to be flexible. We need to be spirit filled, but it also needs to be Bible based. Now, within Christianity, there are some who are hostile to change. They're hostile to change. This hostility has grown out of a tendency. Sometimes we, we want to make non-absolutes into something that is an absolute. That we, we take the non-essentials and we can sometimes make them essential. You know what I'm saying? I, ho- I hope you understand that. Um, I guess another way of doing it is is kind of like what the Pharisees g- did. Jesus talked about the Pharisees, what they would do sometimes is they would turn their human traditions into absolutes. Right? Jesus called them hypocrites. Okay? Uh, Human traditions can be a good thing. But when those become traditionalism, then that's we're, we're worshiping the traditions. I hope you see a problem with that. Let me make it clear. I'm not advocating a ruthless abandonment of tried and true methods but rather i think we need to be a bit more open to new and creative approaches to evangelism as 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 long as they they are restrained by biblical boundaries okay uh, we can go anything anywhere within those biblical boundaries all right but sometimes people you know if they got a biblical boundary that's a kilometer wide sometimes if you're very rigid you can make your little teeny fence in the middle and, you know, and they don't want to move out of that. And you limit yourself in the process. Some of us may be practicing traditionalism. Now, that is no surprise. I mean, as I said, it happened with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 15. Look at, look at Matthew 15. Uh, certainly, we don't want to be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay? <laughs> I hope you don't. Matthew 15, look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. Jesus speaking here. He says, the, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Yeah, that's that's a bit humorous, isn't it? I mean, 
So they, they, they take a non-absolute and turn it into an absolute, and then they ignore God's absolutes. Whoa. I hope you got a problem with that. When God says to do something or don't do something, that's an absolute. But they were taking something that wasn't even in the Bible and turning it into an absolute. And too, too often in Christianity, that happens in evangelism and, and missions. And, and we, we, we take a method, for example, and make that an absolute. And say, well, you know, this is the only way I can witness about Jesus. Really? Or this is the only way missions can be done. Really? No, I think we, we shouldn't worship our traditionalism. We need to be a bit flexible. Okay? Sometimes God might lead us to do something a little bit different. Now, there's at least four basic guidelines in making changes and developing strategies. Let me help you think through this a little bit here, okay? Because sometimes people, you know... You, start talking about being flexible and and talk about missions and this sort of stuff people can get excited and 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 the, the zeal cannot be truth driven all right remember doctrine or theology drives methodology doctrine should always drive our methodology which is what we do now number 1 is there a real need okay that's the first question you can ask is there a real need and of course there is a need for, for, uh, for missionaries, for missions, for us to be involved in evangelism. There's a great need. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And number two, a second question is, are the resources there? And by, by resources, I mean, are the human resources there? Are the financial resources there? Uh, maybe there needs to be some facilities, okay? There's various questions in this we, we ought to be asking as we think about being managers of God's possessions and money. Number three, can the Word of God be honored? Can the Word of God be honored? If if we're thinking about adapting, thinking about changing something, the way we do something, developing a new strategy, we got to ask the question, can the Word of God be honored in what I do? And number four, has the Holy Spirit prompted this? Or Or has something else prompted it? Hopefully it's the Holy Spirit prompting. And of course, when He's prompting, we need to listen and we need to obey. So, if recognizing the stifling factors is the first necessity in recovering urgency in evangelism, then you say, well, what is the second? There is a second, but what is it? Well, number two is we need to rekindle the Spirit's fire. We need to rekindle the Spirit's fire. Uh, hopefully we've had it at one point, and if we have, then we need to rebuild that fire. So what must happen for this rekindling to take place, you ask? What must happen? Well, there's two essential ingredients which must be factored into our lives if the flames of evangelism are going to be burn brightly in ourselves as well as in our church. I, I, I hope you're not content with the status quo, right? There is much more that God wants us to do. There are many souls that need to be saved. There are countries where God wants us to be involved in. Right? There's much more work to be done before Christ comes. So what do we do? Well, number one, we need, to, we need biblical motives to start with. Okay? We need biblical motives. Now, the reason we need biblical motives, if you have wrong motives or false motives, 
motives, that's going to be unhelpful. Usually with false motives, people quit, <laughs> you know, partway through. Uh, you know, you, you might get excited about evangelism, for example, but if you've got a false motive for evangelism, you're probably not going to do everything that God wants you to do. Probably. So let's talk about this. So what, what we need to be, to be doing is cleansing ourselves of false motives, and then we need to have the right motives that will be driving us to do what God wants us to do. Let, but, so let's think negatively, first of all, about some false motives. Some false motives. Number one, there is the human success syndrome. Heard of that one? <laughs> that, that's not prescribed by a doctor. But there is such a thing as a human success syndrome. And, and by that, it, 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 it's this, this idea amongst Christian, Christians sometimes in churches where bigger is better. Really? Is that true? Is bigger always better? No, of course not. Uh, the, the idea of uh, the, the pragmatistic idea that, you know, uh, just, you know, no matter the cost, uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. Well, that's the human success syndrome. That's a false motive. Okay? We shouldn't do what we do just because we want a bigger church or, uh, you know, we, we want people to look at us, you know, and, and praise us. No, that's, that's, that's a wrong option. Uh, number two is there's the pacification of, of our guilt feelings. Sometimes we can feel guilty. Hey, you know, I know God commands me to evangelize and to be involved in missions. Uh, so what, what's going on here with these guilt feelings is the accent, the emphasis is on our feelings, right? And of course, that's not where the emphasis should be. Number three, there might be an emphasis in gaining status. Uh, sometimes people love the admiration that comes from their peers or other people in the church as they... Uh, as they are seeing fruit in their ministry. That's the wrong motive. Number four, there might be a, a hunger for personal empire building. <laughs> Some people are like that. They, they want to build up their own personal empire. And uh, that's the belief that uh, you can use gospel preaching, uh, maybe even on television or in some other form, and and uh, be involved in personal witnessing for building some circle around you that you're in control of. That's a wrong motive. And so the trouble with all of those things I just mentioned, all four of them, is what's at the core? What is at the core of all four of those is self-love. Self-love is the core that is coming out from that. And love of self is always the wrong starting point for, for evangelism. True evangelism is always preoccupied, as Scripture says, by love of God. That's where it starts. Love of Christ constrains us. Uh, also, as well as our love for our neighbor, love for other people. Well, motives are important, aren't they? Motives are vitally important. And since motives are critically important to ministry, then we've we got to ask a few questions as we think about this subject. What is it that makes up a right set of motives? How do I evaluate motives, whether they're right or wrong? 
What are the elements of the biblical motives which should compel us to evangelize? Well, the first motive, number one, is obedience to the Scriptures. Obedience to the Scriptures is a right motive. Now, in each of the first five books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, we're given a record of Christ's universal commission to the church. Now, we're going to look at all all five of those books really quickly. So you can turn to Matthew 28 to start with, okay? But what I want you to see here, in all five of these books, the first five books in your New Testament, starting in Matthew 28, I want you to notice that we are the recipients of one great mandate. One great mandate. And the Bible tells us to evangelize. And this mandate, by the way, is stated in at least, in at least five different uh, five different ways, if you will, five different occasions. Uh, they all have a little different emphasis. And I want you to look at the first one here in Matthew 28. Matthew 28 gives us the strategy of our ministry. This is the strategy of our ministry as, as a church. Matthew 28, this is what Jesus said. Uh, look at verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the strategy of our ministry. Okay, You don't have to make it up. Uh, churches and individuals and pastors and other people involved in ministry don't have to think very hard on this because Jesus told us the strategy of our ministry and the command there is to make disciples. That's in verse 19. That's the only command in that passage, in fact. There's only one command, make disciples. And then there's several participles that surround that that tell us how to make disciples. We are to be going we are to be baptizing, and we are to be teaching. Those are participles in the Greek language. Those help us to know how to obey the command of making disciples. So in a nutshell, we're to make disciples by going, by evangelizing, by baptizing, by teaching. And we, while we do this, Jesus says you do it all in reliance upon Him and His power. Did you notice that? Because He says He has unlimited power. In fact, he says there, he has all authority. Jesus has all authority, so we go in his authority. We, not in our own authority, but in his authority. And then he says he has also an ending presence with us, because he says, you do this until I come again. He says, I am with you always to the end of the world. That's the strategy of our ministry. Now look at Mark chapter 16. Mark 16 gives us the scope of our mission. I'm borrowing a uh, nice little alliterated outline from one of my professors. I'm not very good with alliteration, so you notice all these start with S, and then they end with an M. This is the scope of our mission. Look what uh, the Bible says in Mark 16, verse 15. 16, verse 15. And he said to them... Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. <laughs> so Jesus says, all the world, 
Every every creature, all creation. By the way, that doesn't include the trees and the rocks. You understand, right? He's referring to people there. And I also want you to notice there's no geographical boundaries. There are no racial boundaries here. There is no religious boundaries. It doesn't mean, you know, well, everywhere except where Islam is, right? No, Jesus didn't say that. Everywhere. It's a universal offer. Everyone is included, and no one is excluded. That's what Jesus says. That's the scope of our mission. Now turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, we get the substance of our message. As we go and make disciples, by the way, that is command for every one of us, as we do that, what do we say? What's the message? Well, look what Luke 24, verse 47 says. Verse 47 says, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then he says, I'm sending you. Right? That, that's the message. <clears throat> Excuse me. The message is repentance, which is literally a change of mind in regards to my sin. And then a remission of that sin. There is, not only am I supposed to change my mind, there, there, with that comes a forgiveness. God is able and willing to forgive anyone's sin. There is no such thing as a sinner that has sinned so much or done so great a sin that God can't forgive it. That is not possible. When Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin and, er- and other people's sin as well, it included all sins. That's the scope of the mission. Or, sorry, the, the, the substance of the message. So a true follower of Jesus Christ is prepared to forsake all lesser loyalties. We're to teach this. We're to teach that there needs to be a decisive break from sin. Okay, Somebody shouldn't think, you know, hey, well, you know, I'll just add Jesus into my life and kind of continue on my merry way, just doing my, my own thing. No! That's not repentance. You don't just do your own thing and then, you know, tack Jesus on whenever I feel like it and whenever I'm comfortable. That is not repentance. When you take Jesus, it is a total life change. And the Holy Spirit resides within every believer. You become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have a new master, and you're supposed to do what he wants you to do. So we can't just tell people, you know, you know, you know, Jesus loves you, he forgives sin. No, it's it's far more than that. Well, in John chapter 20, we have the source of our mandate. John 20 gives us the source of our mandate. Look at John 20, verse 21. John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, we don't have time to go into great depth in all these passages, but notice, where's the mandate come from? Who, who does the sending? Okay? 
Now, some people would say it's the church that does the sending or, or a missions agency that does the sending. Really? Where do they get the authority to do that? Well, they get it from Jesus. Where did Jesus get it from? Jesus got it from his Father in heaven. So I want you to notice the command comes from Jesus himself. Therefore, because of that, you and I should not ignore this command. It's a very serious command. Well, Acts chapter 1 gives us the strength of our manpower. The strength of our manpower. Look at Acts 1 verse 8. Acts 1 verse 8. Acts 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So clearly here we we see the, the strength, the energy for ministry is, of course, it's not in me, it's not in you. That's not where the energy comes from. The strength or the energy is from the Holy Spirit, right? That's what it says. It's when the Holy Spirit comes upon you that you're going to receive that power. So he's the one who resides within every Christian. He's the one who empowers us. He's the one who teaches us the word. He's the one who guides us. And so if he's not speaking through us, then guess what? What's our witness going to be like? Are we going to have any power in evangelism and missions? Without the Holy Spirit? No, of course not. It'll be useless, meaningless. Now, let me ask you this, because we're supposed to be witnesses, right? We are to be witnesses. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. But what is a witness? What does a witness do, anyway? Well, if you've ever been in a court situation or seen a court situation, a witness, witnesses get called to the stand, and what do they do? The, The witness talks about something they hopefully know about, right? (laughs) Hopefully, or they shouldn't be on the stand. Witness is supposed to speak about what they've seen, what they've heard, what they know about. Well, you carry that over into evangelism. The Great Commission requires us then to have a vision and a strategy to know Jesus Christ. How can we witness about Jesus Christ if we don't really know him deeply, intimately? We're not going to be very good witnesses if we don't know him deeply and intimately. Now, the other thing I want you to notice in Acts 1a here is that the Great Commission is, is very broad, very wide, very vast, all right? Notice the, the demand starts in the local place here. The demand started in, in Jerusalem. Jesus says it starts in Jerusalem in this situation. Well, Let's carry that over to to us, all right? Because we're not living in Jerusalem. So Hamilton is our Jerusalem. Wherever we live is our Jerusalem. And and we are to be witnesses in that place. But it, it carries over into the regional. That's Judea was the area around Jerusalem. So you could say the Waikato or the North Island or all New Zealand, however you want to word that. But it also includes cross-cultural missions. Samaria was a place where the, uh, when, when uh, the northern, northern kingdom of Israel, after it had divided, it was conquered in 722 by the Assyrians. And typical, typically what the Assyrians would do to, to squelch the national pride and patriotism and uprisings, they would, 
they would bring in other cultures and other races to intermarry with the people. And that's exactly what they did in the northern kingdom of Israel, which, is, which was Samaria. And so there were no longer any purebred Jews in that place. And so those who lived in Jerusalem and in the southern kingdom of Judea, you know, they, they, they looked down at those Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. So we, we kind of could, we, we could apply this to cross-cultural missions. Anyone that's different from us would be your Samaria. But then, of course, the uttermost part of the world would be international missions. So Jesus is covering everything here, isn't he? The Great Commission is requiring us this, this great vision, this vast strategy. It's demanding the local, the regional, cross-cultural, cross-cultural as well as international missions. It's covering everything, everyone, all people groups. Well, if obedience to the Scriptures is the first motivation, and it should be, and, and hopefully that's motivating us to engage in evangelism, then love for the falling sinner should be the second motivation for us. Hopefully we should have a love for the fallen sinner. Uh, I've got two points I want to focus on, two key concepts uh, here that we'll focus on in a moment. But uh, the second motive is love for the fallen sinner. And i got to ask you this, what is the condition of the fallen sinner. If we don't have a a right belief in this particular doctrine, then we're not going to have the right methodology. Because remember, it's it's our theology that's going to drive our methodology. So we need to think biblically here. What is the condition of fallen sinners? Well, look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4. I want you to see how Jesus viewed people. This is very helpful. Luke chapter 4. If you have a Bible, please turn there. All right, don't take my words for it. All right, Luke chapter 4. Put your eyeballs on Scripture. These are, this is God's holy, inspired word. How did Jesus see those to whom he ministered? Luke 4, verse 18 answers that question. Look at verse 18. He It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Let's stop there. There's four groups here I want you to notice. Jesus identifies the nature of His messianic mission. Jesus had a mission. He had a purpose for coming to earth. And he tells us precisely how he viewed people. Now, this is helpful. Look at this. Number one, Jesus saw people as poor. Now, he's not referring to their financial situation, okay? He's not talking about their pocketbooks or how big their bank account is or, you know, what what is their retirement or their superannuation like. No, that's not what he's talking about. Christ saw them poor. He says, God has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. It means, what does this mean in evangelism then? In evangelism, we're dealing with people who are spiritually destitute. Spiritually speaking, they have nothing. Those who have nothing, according to the Beatitudes, are poor in spirit. That's a good thing, because Jesus says there in 
in uh, Matthew chapter 5. That's how you come. That is the first essential element of true saving faith. You must be poor in spirit. You must recognize you have nothing to offer God except your sin. And trust me, that's not impressive to him. So, these people are utterly incapable of helping themselves. The Bible is clear that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You cannot save yourself. Dead person cannot raise themselves to life. So God must make you born again. He's the one who makes you a new creation. Christ came to help these type of people. Number two, Christ saw them brokenhearted. And, and what this means in evangelism, we're dealing with people who are, not only do they, they have a spiritual problem, but emotionally they're just shattered. Emotionally shattered. And here's where the gospel's helpful. Here's where Jesus can heal them in, in, in that sense. But number three, Christ saw them captive. They were captive. It means that in evangelism we're dealing with the morally conquered. They've been, they've been conquered. They're defeated. They're serving the wrong master. They need a new one. Number four, Christ saw them as blind. And not, we're not, of course, we're not talking physically blind here. We're talking spiritually blind. And so that means in evangelism, we're dealing with people who, who are walking around this earth and, and, and in human ways, they might appear to be wise and intelligent, but they're, they're groping. They, they want to know the truth. And it's the truth that will set them free, the Bible says. They need that truth of the gospel because they're spiritually blind. Jesus points that out here. Number five, Christ saw them oppressed. They were oppressed. And he says, I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And, and this means in evangelism that we're dealing with people who are morally wounded. They, they've, they had deep wounds. And those wounds will never heal without Jesus and the gospel. People are crushed. They're literally, not literally, but, but <clears throat> morally broken in pieces. And they can't put themselves together. The second important concept following the condition of lost sinners is we need to understand the character of biblical love. There is a biblical love that is different often from uh, human, what we often think of human love, or particularly Hollywood love, that's, that's certainly not biblical love. And so in, in the simplest of terms, I, I, want, I want you to see uh, four great qualities of love coming from Luke chapter 7. Turn over to Luke 7. Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises a widow's son... And, and there's some things about Jesus and his love that we can learn from this. All right? Luke chapter 7, look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the, the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. 
Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So what can we learn about the character of biblical love from this passage? Well, number one, biblical love sees. It sees. Look what, because of verse 13, verse 13 it says that the Lord saw her. That's where it starts. You're not going to have biblical love unless, first of all, you see. You have to be aware. <laughs> I mean, how, how, do, how do we get a love for people? How do we get a love for, you know, what's going on in Kazakhstan or the Solomon Islands? How, how are you going to love if you, if you never see? Which is one reason I like showing you some videos. Lord willing, I'll have some more video to show you when I get back from the Solomon Islands. But that's where it starts. It sees, and then it also feels what Jesus saw did something to his heart because he says, it says that he had compassion on her. Jesus felt something as a result of what he saw. And number three, biblical love speaks. It doesn't remain silent because he told them, do not weep. Do not weep. So he sees he feels something as a result of what he sees, and then he's, he speaks into their life to try to help. And number four, it acts. Biblical love acts. It actually does something. It doesn't just speak, it does something, because he touched. And he's, he, he told that young man to arise, and he brought that young man back to life. Now, you can't do that. I can't do that part. But spiritually speaking, as we're witnesses for Christ, we can lead people to the Master who can bring them back to life. That's our part. So the first essential ingredient in rekindling the Spirit's fire is an integration of biblical motives. The second is to develop a colonial perspective. And I hope you understand what I mean by colonial perspective. Remember the original colonists who came to New Zealand? Of course, they had a colonial perspective, but today we we have a hard time understanding what those original colonists went through. The Bible talks about this, though. It's very helpful. Um, Number one, as we think about what, what is a colonial perspective, we need to have a wartime lifestyle. A wartime lifestyle. I don't know if you've ever visited. uh, There's a museum out east of here as you head out toward uh, Mournsville, Matamata area out there, there's, there's actually a museum out that way. That was, um, and, and there's a tower that was built during those colonial days. At the, at the top of that tower, there's little, there's little uh, openings so that people could go up there and shoot. So if, they, you know, if someone was coming to kill them or take them captive or steal their stuff or whatever, they, they could protect themselves. Well, we don't do that nowadays because we don't, we don't have this kind of colonial perspective. We're not in a wartime lifestyle. But sadly speaking, do you realize uh, we are in a war? We are in a war. The Bible says we are. In fact, we need to be careful that we're not fooled into a peacetime lifestyle. There's a war going on. I mean, why else would the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6 here, he says, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My friend, have you gone to sleep? I don't mean physically. But have you entered into a peacetime mentality, a peacetime lifestyle? If you have, you need to wake up. We're in a war. You need to put on the armor of God to defend yourself in this war. It's time for the soldiers of Jesus Christ to get past luxurious peacetime lifestyles. We're engaged in a great struggle for the souls of people. And it's, 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 it's a devastating war. There are casualties in war. Just look around you. Look at the people you work with. Look at the people whom you live amongst. There are casualties everywhere. People who live in wartime live differently than we do during peacetime. How do patriots live when their nation is at war? Well, usually they end up reverting to a lifestyle that that uh, they're, they're no longer encumbered by the non-essentials. People, people sell, you know, any metal items, for example, get sold to the military so they can make wartime equipment, right? You know, anything, all their nails and so forth, they get, get sold. They get, you know, they, they become bombs or missiles or tanks or whatever, right? So wartime mentality is very helpful, So, my friends, we need to recover the art of living simply, of living contentedly with what God gives us. Christians who are content with with what God has given us, they're they're, they're going to be um, more likely to have this kind of a wartime lifestyle, a wartime mentality. For many of us, uh, this might require a reduction of our lifestyle to to some sort of a level. Uh, That's something you need to pray about between you and God. Okay, I'm not going to tell you what level that should be. The Bible doesn't give us specifics on what that level should be. For you, know, for you it might be different from me, so I can't tell you that. You take that up with God. Some of us might need to reduce our lifestyles. Some of us might need to think about that issue. Now, why is this so important? The reason it's important, well, I could give you at least three billion reasons. And by three billion reasons, I mean there's three billion people Three billion reasons who are who are uh, who are outside of Jesus Christ, and many of those don't even have a Bible in their own language. Okay, so if you have a Bible in your language, you're extremely blessed. Okay, you are extremely blessed to be able to come even today and sit here and hear the word preach is a blessing. There are many people in this world, even if they have a healthy church to go to. They go in fear, not knowing when the grenade is going to be thrown in and blow them up, or when the building will be burned down around them, or when they're going to be thrown in prison. These are realities around the world today. People go to church, if they have a church to go to, in fear often. Many don't even have the Word of God in their own language, and they're praying that, that they would know God somehow, some way. So my friends, you say, why is this so important? Well, there's at least three billion reasons why this is important. My friends, you can't be everywhere. Of course not. But remember, you can go where where you are. 
God has put you in a place and you need to bloom. You need to bear fruit where God has put you, wherever that is. Okay? You know, if you're working in a factory, God put you there. Minister to those people. God put you in your neighborhood to minister to those people around you. God gave you a family to minister to those family members. Okay? God put us in this city to minister here, in this country to minister here, and then we do what we can for the uttermost part of the earth. There's a great need. My friends, do you see? Is biblical love in your heart? Do you, do you see as God sees? Most of the time we don't, probably. And then hopefully we'll pray that God would help you to see. That you would have a heart that he has. I mean, think about it. The first, the first missionary was Jesus, right? One of the first missionaries was Jesus. God sent his own son because he loved the world. Do we love the world as God loves the world? Biblical love will help us to see, and then that's going to cause us to say something, do something about that need. May God give us a heart that sees as he sees to do what he wants us to do. Let's pray.